Hey folks, what's up? Welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I'm your host, Robert Scavone Jr. Twice a month, we meet to cover opinions from the Florida appellate courts. In this episode, we have a handful of civil and criminal cases from this month. Links to the cases we discuss can be found in the show notes. A quick reminder that the previous episode was the first part of a two-part interview with Judge Adalberto Jordan of the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit and Judge Kevin Emis from Florida's 3rd District Court of Appeal. Be sure to hit the notification button so you don't miss part two, which will drop next week. All right, before we get to the cases, the disclaimers. One, I am not your lawyer. Two, if you have a legal issue, please call a lawyer. Three, the following podcast is not legal advice. And four, this is not an advertisement for legal services. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get to the opinions. Our first criminal case is Simmons v. State, and it is a first DCA case from March 16th. The defendant was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder and four counts of attempted armed robbery. He claimed self-defense, and the jury received the self-defense instructions, but they didn't buy the defendant's claim. Seeking post-conviction relief, the defendant claimed his lawyer was ineffective for failing to move to dismiss based on Florida's stand-your-ground law. The trial court denied post-conviction relief, and the defendant appealed. The first DCA affirmed, to succeed on an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, a defendant must show that there is a reasonable probability that, but for trial counsel's error, the outcome of the case would have been different. Here, the court stated that when a jury rejects a claim of self-defense at trial beyond a reasonable doubt, there is no reasonable probability that a trial judge would have rendered a different judgment at a stand-your-ground hearing with a lower standard of proof. The lower standard of proof the court is referring to here is the clear and convincing evidence standard, which is the state's burden at a stand-your-ground hearing. Here, The defendant's claim failed as a matter of law because a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt precludes a finding that the trial counsel's error prejudiced the defendant. The next criminal case is T.H. v. State, a second DCA case from March 18th. This is another case related to criminal cases in the age of COVID. The trial court conducted a non-jury trial via Zoom over the juvenile's objection and without a hearing on the juvenile's objection. For those of you who are not familiar with juvenile delinquency proceedings, it is well established that juveniles do not have a right to a jury trial. The juvenile claimed that conducting the hearing via Zoom would deprive him of his right to confront witnesses against him and would violate his right to due process. In the order denying the juvenile's objections, the trial court noted that COVID orders issued by the Florida Supreme Court permitted remote trials for juveniles. The second DCA reversed and remanded for a new trial. The majority began by noting that the decision is based on a due process analysis, not on whether the Sixth Amendment's right to confrontation applies in juvenile proceedings. Therefore, the question in this case was one of fundamental fairness, not the right to confrontation per se. Despite noting this important distinction, 
the majority applied Sixth Amendment precedent and, in an analytical leap, concluded that the trial court erred by not giving the juvenile a hearing on his objection and by not making a case-specific determination as to whether conducting the hearing via Zoom was necessary. The majority also gave short shrift to EACV State, where the 4th DCA recently held that remote non-jury trials do not violate a juvenile's confrontation or due process rights. The majority distinguished EAC, if you can call it that, on the grounds that the trial court in that case conducted a hearing on the juvenile's objections to remote proceedings, and because at the time of EAC's trial, the 15th Judicial Circuit was still in phase one COVID protocol. I, for one, think the second DCA got this case wrong, and I'm not alone. In dissent, Judge Atkinson pointed out a number of deficiencies in the majority's analysis. He first noted that the people of the state of Florida have elected to treat adult criminal trials and juvenile delinquency proceedings differently. Thus, because the latter are not criminal proceedings, the Confrontation Clause does not apply. Judge Atkinson also took issue with the way the majority read Supreme Court precedent dealing with the Confrontation Clause. He noted that just because Maryland v. Craig requires a case-specific determination on whether to allow witnesses in an adult criminal trial to appear via closed-circuit TV does not mean the same case-specific analysis is required in juvenile cases. And finally, he pointed out that the trial court had the specific authority under Florida Supreme Court orders to conduct the non-jury trial via Zoom. Quote, I am no more in a position to question administrative orders of the Florida Supreme Court than I am to question binding precedent of the United States of the Supreme Court, end quote. Next, we have a quick hitter from the second DCA, Florida versus Fernandez. This is an en banc decision dealing with the state's right to appeal when it fails to preserve the issue of standing in the Fourth Amendment context. This case was issued on March 25th, 2022. All lawyers are aware of the long-standing and common-sense principle of law that you cannot appeal an issue that you did not raise in the trial court. Fundamental error is an exception to this rule. In this case, the second DCA discussed another exception, whether the state, for the first time on appeal, may argue that a defendant lacks standing to challenge a Fourth Amendment violation. Receding from its prior precedent, the second DCA held that the state may not appeal the standing issue unless it raises the issue in the trial court. The second DCA also certified conflict with the first, third, and fourth DCAs. We'll have to see if the Florida Supreme Court takes the case. Our final criminal case comes from the Florida Supreme Court. It's Throutman v. Jr., and it was issued on March 17th of 2022, and it involves Arthur hearings. What is an Arthur hearing? It is essentially a bond hearing. Under Florida's constitution, anyone charged with a crime is entitled to pretrial release on reasonable conditions, meaning bond pending trial. But 
there are two exceptions. Persons charged with a capital offense or any offense punishable by life are not entitled to pretrial release. This does not mean that such persons cannot be released pending trial. It simply means that the default position is to hold those persons in custody pending trial. To hold an individual charged with a capital offense or a PBL, the state has the burden of showing that proof is evident or the presumption of guilt is great. This burden of proof is higher than beyond a reasonable doubt. The state makes this showing at an Arthur hearing, where it puts on evidence to show that the case against the defendant is very strong. If the state makes an adequate showing, the court may hold the defendant without bond while he or she awaits trial. In this case, the Florida Supreme Court was presented with a conflict among the DCAs on when an Arthur hearing must take place. The fourth DCA in two cases held that the trial court's refusal to authorize pretrial release or to make the required findings at first appearance that the proof of guilt was evident or the presumption was great violated the defendant's constitutional right to pretrial release. The third DCA, however, held that Florida's constitution, quote, does not prohibit the trial court the discretion at first appearance to defer ruling on bail and to detain the defendant for a reasonable time to conduct a full Arthur hearing. To exercise such discretion, the court is not required by the Constitution to make a preliminary finding of proof evident or presumption great." End quote. The Florida Supreme Court disapproved of the 4th DCA's cases and agreed with the 3rd DCA's holding that I just read. Accordingly, a first appearance judge may hold a defendant without bond pending a full Arthur hearing. Our first civil case is the Bank of New York Mellon versus Bontu, and this is a third DCA case that was issued on March 16th. This case involves attorney misconduct. First, some background. In 2019, the bank began foreclosure proceedings against Bontu. Bontu propounded discovery requests on the bank, which objected to certain disclosures. A general magistrate concluded that the bank's objections were not made in bad faith. Bontu filed exceptions to the magistrate's report and recommendation. The trial court granted Bontu's objections and ordered production. The bank petitioned for cert in an effort to quash the trial court's order. The third DCA granted cert and quashed the order, finding that the trial court departed from the essential requirements of law by failing to address the merits of the magistrate's report and recommendation. Counsel for Bontu moved for rehearing on Bonk, and that was where the trouble started. In denying the motion for rehearing on Bonk, the court stated that counsel for Bontu violated Florida rules of appellate procedure and the rules regulating the Florida bar by filing an appendix containing documents outside the record on review and addressing events or proceedings that occurred after the trial court entered the order on review. Additionally, 
His request for rehearing en banc was improper because although he claimed that quashal of the trial court's discovery order violated his client's constitutional rights, he failed to explain how that was so. And I love this language here from the court. A motion for rehearing is not an open invitation for an unhappy litigant or attorney to re-argue the same points previously presented or to discuss the bottomless depth of the displeasure that one might feel towards this judicial body as a result of having unsuccessfully sought appellate relief. That's priceless. Finally, and perhaps fatally, counsel for Bontu recklessly impugned and disparaged the third DCA judges and the judges in the circuit court. This is a major no-no. For these reasons, the third DCA issued an order to show cause as to why it should not sanction counsel for Bontu for his unprofessional conduct. Next, we have Wiggins versus Brightview Landscaping Services, a fourth DCA opinion from March 16th. This case deals with default judgments. Brightview was properly served with the complaint, but failed to appear, resulting in default. Brightview did not appear at the trial on damages, and the jury awarded Wiggins $2.5 million. Brightview sought relief from the judgment claiming excusable neglect. Brightview argued that it believed the claim was resolved through Wiggins' work comp policy. According to Brightview, when it received Wiggins' work comp claim, it opened a computer file and coded it as a work comp case. Due to, quote, a clerical and systems error, end quote, Wiggins' subsequent civil complaint was also coded as a work comp matter, which had already been marked closed and paid. In sum, Brightview claimed, quote, because all filings were electronic, once the initial electronic coding mistake was made in 2015, Brightview would have no reason to look at or review any subsequent filings. In other words, no human eyes ever looked at the filing, end quote. The trial court granted Brightview's motion to set aside the final judgment as to damages, finding that Brightview had not been given notice of the trial. However, the trial court denied Brightview's motion to set aside default as to liability. The trial court rejected Brightview's claim of excusable neglect and found that Brightview was grossly negligent in failing to appear, noting at least eight instances where documents were sent to Brightview's registered agent. The issue of excusable neglect was squarely before the 4th DCA, and it held that the trial court erred in refusing to set aside the default as to liability. The 4th DCA distinguished this case from cases where the defendant's law firm knew that its internal processes were unreliable. Here, Brightview was not on notice that its system had improperly coded the matter. The court found that this case was more like cases in which no human eyes saw the filing. 
The court explained, because of the initial error set in motion by the computer coding error, Brightview did not intentionally ignore subsequent filings. Also, nothing before the trial court indicated this was a recurring problem that Brightview knew or should have known about. Ultimately, the court found that Brightview had met its burden of showing excusable neglect. Judge Warner, concurring in part and dissenting in part, agreed with the majority's affirmance as to vacator of final judgment, but would have remanded for an evidentiary hearing on Brightview's claim of excusable neglect. Pointing out what should be obvious by now, she noted that some person must have placed the code on the original documents. Therefore, someone had seen the original documents. Therefore, whether human eyes saw the filings was a question that needed to be resolved. Next is Kelly Air Services LLC versus Colon. This is a work comp case from the first DCA, which was issued on March 16th. The court provided the following facts. Colon was assigned a company vehicle. He had the exclusive ability to drive his employer-provided car to and from work and to make incidental personal trips on the way to and from work. He was not required to drive the company vehicle to and from work, but was permitted to do so at his convenience. At the time of the accident, Kloon was traveling from his final service call and had clocked out of work by notifying his supervisor that he was done for the day. Florida's work comp statute covers injuries arising out of and in the course of employment. The statute also includes a going or coming provision, which precludes recovery for injuries suffered while traveling to and from work if the means of transportation was available for the employee's exclusive personal use, and it does not matter whether the employer supplies the transportation. The statute also includes a traveling employee's provision. It allows for compensation for injuries sustained during travel if the injury arises out of and is in the course of employment and while the employee is actively engaged in the duties of employment. The judge of compensation claims held that the going and coming provision did not apply in this case, meaning that Kloon was covered by work comp, because although he could use the vehicle for non-work purposes, the use was restricted. According to the compensation judge, Kloon was covered because he did not have unrestricted use of the company vehicle. The judge also concluded that Colon's injuries were compensable because he was a traveling employee at the time of the accident. The first DCA disagreed. As for the going and coming provision, the court concluded that, based on a plain reading of the statute, the provision applied in this case because Colon had exclusive access to the company vehicle. Unlike an employee-provided bus, which is not available for any employee's exclusive use, 
the vehicle made available to Kloon was for his use only. Therefore, Kloon's injury did not arise out of or in the course of his employment. According to the court, the question is whether the vehicle is exclusively available to the employee for the purposes of going and coming to work. Here it was. As for the traveling employee provision, the court explained that the question is not whether the employee is a traveling employee. The question is whether, at the time of the injury, the employee was in a traveling status. In other words, quote, an employee can be in a compensable status while traveling so long as they are not traveling to or from work, end quote, because traveling to and from work is expressly excluded under the statute. Here, Cahoon was not in traveling status because he had clocked out and was on his way home at the time of the accident. The first DCA reversed and remanded the case. Our next case is Swedberg v. Goldfingers South, Inc. And this is a case issued by the third DCA on March 16th. Swedberg filed a claim alleging unauthorized publication of name and likeness, violation of common law right to publicity, conversion, and unjust enrichment after Goldfingers, an adult entertainment establishment, published her likeness on Facebook without her permission to promote events in 2015 and 2016. For purposes of the unauthorized publication claim, Florida Statute 770.07 provides that a cause of action for single publication accrues at the time of the first publication. The purpose of the statute is to, quote, avoid continuous litigation following mass dissemination in the modern media, end quote. The rule exists, as the court explained, not to deprive an injured plaintiff of her right to bring suit, but rather to protect the defendant and the courts from a multiplicity of suits. Here, the parties agreed that the correct statute limitations period was four years and that Swedberg's claim from the 2015 publication was outside the period. However, Goldfingers argued that Swedberg's claim for the 2016 publication was also time barred because it was part of a single publication which dated back to the 2015 promotion. The trial court agreed and dismissed the complaint. The third DCA reversed. It held that the single publication rule did not apply because the complaint alleged that Goldfinger's second publication in 2016 was not the continued dissemination of a single publication. It was the result of a second decision by the club to make a separate use of Swedberg's likeness to promote a different event at the club. In Florida, a separate and distinct decision to publish 
even identical information does not fall within the ambit of the single publication rule. And finally, a quick update from the Florida Supreme Court. In episode three, we covered Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds versus Duganin, a second DCA case from March 9th. In that case, the DC held that Angle plaintiffs do not have to prove reliance on a tobacco company's false statement in order to support a claim for fraudulent concealment or conspiracy. The third DCA certified conflict. Resolving that conflict, the Florida Supreme Court in Prentice versus R.J. Reynolds Tobacco held that an Angle progeny plaintiff must prove reliance on a false statement that concealed or omitted material information about the health effects or addictiveness of smoking cigarettes. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, including part two of my interview with Judge Jordan and Judge Emis. This podcast is produced by Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions, LLC. Thank you very much for listening and subscribing. If you like what you've heard here today, please share this podcast with your friends and your colleagues. And remember, people, case law is one word.